Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello and welcome back to Books and Nachos' Harry Potter retrospective series, looking at the novels. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and joining me... Stuart and Brock. So the Chamber of Secrets. Brock, as you're the fan here, how many times have you read it? I don't need to ask if you've read it before this podcast. I reread it for this podcast, though, and I've read it four times, but this is the first time I've read it in, I'd say, a solid ten years. Did you read it before there was a movie? Because this thing got published well before there was a movie. It got Actually, the British kids got this before we American kids even got the Sorcerer's Stone. Correct. This book came out in England the same year that Sorcerer's Stone came out here, so they're about a year behind. And once, I believe, Goblet of Fire hit definitely by Order of the Phoenix, they were worldwide releases because the phenomenon had already begun. If you recall last time, I said I read the first three books in the summer of 2000, and I read the fourth book in the fall of 2000. So the fourth book had just come out, and I was reading the first three because that co-worker of mine loaned me the books. And by the time the movies all came out, I had read the books beforehand. I'm incredibly envious of that because I tried to play that game. I'm, of course, reading these for the first time. I haven't read any of the future ones. I just finished the other one last night, actually. And... I'm just trying to imagine. It kept creeping in. Now that I watched the movie of the first one, like I read Snape and there's Alan Rickman and like I'm seeing Daniel Radcliffe and there's very little that I can do to try and capture what this must have looked like to readers like you at that time. There are illustrations. I had the same problem when I read that first book, even though I hadn't seen the first movie. Trailers were everywhere. And so I definitely saw Daniel Radcliffe when I was reading these books. But I have to say that the drawings that start each chapter both helped me to remove my viewing of the movie to see what J.K. Rowling was telling an artist to draw from her imagination of what things are. They were also teases. I'm looking at these drawings like, what the hell is this thing? It's something that's going to show up later in the chapter. So I did have the similar problem, but I was able, the first time I read these books, to disassociate myself. Now, this time, because we are doing a retrospective series in close order, yeah, I'm seeing Rupert Grint and Alan Rickman and all of the rest. So interestingly enough, when I was reading this book the first time, second time, and third time, I was picturing Hugh Grant as Gilderoy Lockhart the entire time. Sure. So this is the first time I've read this book that Hugh Grant wasn't in my head. Now, I'm telling you, I've seen the movie and still picture Hugh Grant in my head while reading the book. And I didn't watch the movie before reading the book, and I couldn't remember who played him. So for him, I did just have my own imagining. Hugh Grant's a great one. I didn't have any specific person in mind. I was just building a mental image, but I knew Kenneth Branagh was going to show up somewhere. I (laughs) couldn't remember which movie he was in. So yeah, all the new characters, the characters that aren't in the movies, I still have my own imaginings of. So I read this book 
after seeing the movie. I went to see the sequel with the same friend I saw the original movie with, and I walked out, and I was like, that's it? I really felt like I was missing out on some phenomenon. And I was like, all right, it ain't the movie, so let's try this book again. And I don't mind saying, I hated this book when I first read it. I absolutely loathed myself for reading it. It felt so juvenile, a little more so than even the first book. I felt like the stories were more meandering, the tale was a bit more childish, the characters a bit more cartoonish, the villain not as good, and yet so much was a rehash of the first book that I actively disliked the act of reading this and forced myself to get to the last page. That was the first time you read it, is that it was your reaction, and you reread it for today. Did you have the same experience? I didn't hate it as much, and I think it's because <laughs> I have come around to the whole wizarding world. I mean, I read all seven books. I haven't seen all eight movies. I ended up becoming enamored in the books in spite of this one and because of this one, and I'll explain. But this time around, I know where everything is going. I know that Tom Riddle isn't a one-off the same way Quirrell was in the first book. I know where things are headed and that this actually is a building block. This is a book that is better in retrospect when you see how the things in it play out in the next five novels than it is on a first reading. I disagree with that, actually. <laughs> I'll say as someone that, again, has never read a Harry Potter book until last week when I read the first one, this one feels like a clear improvement. And I want to ask something, because I think you guys have mentioned this, and I think I've heard this before. Rowling allegedly designed these for a developing mind. That the idea that each book that follows is going to be for a slightly older, slightly more mature, slightly more able to follow a longer... I mean, this one's only 36 pages longer than the first book. But they obviously are going to get big and more challenging and probably darker and scarier, more adult and sophisticated. I feel like I see that happening here. The difference between one and two is this one is just maybe slightly more challenging. I completely agree this book is slightly more challenging. I agree with everything you're saying as the books progress. As a parent, when my daughter was interested in watching and reading these books, uh, we insisted, especially with starting with book three, that she read the book first so she knows what's going to happen. So when she watches the movie, the visual doesn't scare her. So she can picture it in her head first. And with this book especially, she had seen the first two movies before she read the books. And with this one, it's deceptively scary, this book. There's a lot of things going on. And thematically speaking, there are 10 times more themes in this book, in my opinion, than the last time. Arnie, you said you didn't like the book the first time you read it. This has historically been one of my least favorite books in the series. But this time, reading it, I enjoyed it in a way I haven't enjoyed it before. Maybe because it's been 10 years since I've read it. Maybe because now I'm a parent and reading it as a parent but all the themes came at me like a ton of bricks this time, and I really enjoyed it much more. I think that is the reputation. I think I did understand. Again, my niece that is up on these things said you have to get through the first two books. It's not considered in the pantheon of all seven that this is the great one. Like, I got that much, at least. Like, they're still kind of laying the foundation. 
What I would argue is kind of what you said, Arnie. This is a retread of the first one, but I feel like, oh, the stakes are a lot higher. It's a lot less meandering. I don't even know how you could make the case that it's more meandering than the first one. The first one was nothing but digressions and set up and, and like little adventures that felt like a season of a Nickelodeon show stapled into one short little volume. This one, no. I definitely feel from early on, we're seeing a lot more threats to Harry. Harry is much less of a Harry Sue and much more on the defensive. He's less popular. I agree with that. I do. I agree that he's less popular. And you're right. Not as much of a Harry Sue. I like that term. I do (laughs) believe so much of the first half of this novel, though, is still digressions, is still short stories, is still little anecdotes leading up to the big mystery. It's a kid's book, and I know it's a kid's book, and so I'm not damning it for being a kid's book, but I did feel like having everybody get petrified versus any actual stakes, and the fact that, oh, they just were very lucky that they all didn't die was really forehead-slappingly angering. I thought the cat did die. I thought they said something about the fact the cat couldn't be saved. No, Mrs. Norris lives. Okay. But I know, yeah, they end up coming up with the mandrake root solution that, yeah, fixes a lot. A lot of the stuff that you may be talking about, about meandering, some of it is in the movie, some of it's not in the movie, some of it is hinted at in the movie because of those very reasons. For example, early in the book when they go to the burrow, they have that whole thing about the gnome hunting in the garden that has nothing to do with anything except it does go into the themes of the book of class and how people think of other people who are the same or lineage-wise, how dwarves and elves and gnomes are considered in the magic world versus purebloods, half-bloods. They have terms like mudblood and squibs in this book. All sorts of class issues are throughout this book, and all these little tidbits are throughout so, for example, the Death Day party, which is not in the movie, the, the three humans go to this big party of ghosts, and these ghosts have a whole life that's outside of humans, and the humans have, you know, are grotesque and they don't want to be there, and no one wants to go to hang out with these ghosts any more than they have to because ghosts are annoying, blah, blah, blah. And then there's Myrtle, also, who's a ghost in this book. So there's a whole bunch of how Harry treats the elves and the ghosts versus how everyone else treats the ghosts and the elves, etc. So all of these different things are going on. So when you have these little diatribes that completely don't seem like they are necessary for the plot, they do help the themes of the book. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't really pick up on that. But I again, first reading, I guess what I would say, Arnie, is this book is certainly no more of a offender than the last one in having episodic chapters. And I think when you're writing kids fiction, when you consider that they're bedtime stories, oftentimes that this is what you're doing to put a kid to sleep, you want that chapter to have a beginning, middle and end. You don't want to leave too much lingering because you want them to go to sleep. But theoretically, these are kids' books that cross over to adulthood, and theoretically, adult reading, not adults who read at a grade school level, of which there are far too many who probably don't listen to books and nachos, so I will offend them here. But (laughs) (laughs) I read this book after it was a New York Times bestseller. I read this book after book four came out, and I was expecting something more. And I guess the reason this one was a worse offender is because in the first book, 
It felt like things had changed. It felt like a world was built. It felt like characters had arcs. Harry was a very different person at the end of the book than he was at the beginning. His life had turned around. He'd gone from an abused child to the hero of the school. And I may not all have liked how that happened, but I will give it points for some originality and, again, the world building. And here... I felt like there was so much retreading going on and that it was still very much a story for the youngins. I think that's why I was angry. Is it any worse than the first one? I can only judge it as a sequel that hews way too close to the first one and did not change it up enough for me to be interested first time around. Second time around? Like I say... It's better on the second reading. It's still probably going to be my least favorite of the books, though. I think this book has, you said bedtime reading and it's good for the kids there. I think this book has a mystery throughout the whole book that keeps you interested. So, if yes, the beginning of the book is definitely like the Dursleys, they get to Hogwarts, blah, blah, blah. But the mystery that she lays in, and she gets better as the books go on with these mystery laying in. I think for a first time mystery, it certainly works out great, especially to hook in the kids and the adults. The first one had the mystery, though. What was it Hagrid got? From the very first trip to Diagon Alley, the mystery began. Now, yes, it is stronger here because it becomes a whodunit right. as compared to a what is it. But there was mystery and misdirection in the first one where you were able to believe Snape was the one trying to revive Voldemort. Yes. And I'm just going to say the first book, because it does deal with the resurrection of Voldemort felt like it had bigger stakes to me than this Tom Riddle, teenage Voldemort, I was a teenage wizard type thing. I'm not sure I follow that because the guy last time was an adult professor that makes him scarier. This one's scary to me. This one has voices saying, I'm going to kill you. I mean, this one has people, yeah, being frozen, petrified, and maybe they can't come back, like catatonic. Hermione, like, gets it. I mean, like, I feel like this one definitely... Big spiders, grotesque things, grabbing Harry and carrying him off to be eaten. Like, that is way more than anything in the last book. Not to mention Ginny is basically brainwashed or hypnotized to do these things or influenced by, you know, an online blogger, if you will, right, in the diary, who's influencing her to do things that... And she's not even aware she's doing them, which is very scary, especially for kids. You talk about the spider, Stuart. This leads me to one of the biggest flaws about this book is all the deus ex machina that goes on. They're about to be eaten by spiders. Oh, look, random car comes to save them. Yeah, that wasn't so great. I don't like the car in this book at all. I don't like the flying car aspect. I don't like how the car becomes sentient for no reason after it lands. What, what happened there? And they find it in the forest, and then it happens to come and save them. Yeah, the whole thing. I don't like the spider thing either. I don't like the spider at all in this book. I don't see the need for the spiders whatsoever ditto i, I disagree on the spider but the car <laughs> let, let me help you out like kids love the idea of being able to drive and kids love the idea of driving a car that flies even more so it's not a surprise to me look at the uk cover that's the cover of the book 
here he's going to get into a flying car. You don't cut that. But I agree. There probably should have been a reason why the car becomes their best friend. Um, I could have used that. Yes. But then again, it's a magical place. I thought I missed it. I'll be honest. I thought I was like, oh, I should go back and read what happened there because I obviously didn't see the part where it got possessed by the ghost or whatever. But that didn't happen. It didn't happen. No, no. J.K. Rowling should have gone back and written that part. Not you should have gone back and read that part. And the climax of this book is not much better. There is a lot of happenstance and luck that occurs at the end of this novel that pissed me off. I think it was when <laughs> closing the book, it was the middle of winter, I had a fire going, I was just graduating from graduate school. So this is my mindset while I'm reading this book. I am burning my textbooks because I'm so happy to have graduated from the last class I'll ever take. I almost put this book in there with them. I was so pissed off by all of the conveniences Rowling puts into this book. Has the woman never heard of a second draft? When did she write this? Was this coming after, like, the book hit big and, like, I have to do this in a year? From what I understand it is she was having trouble finishing this book. She handed it in, took it back, and worked on it for six more weeks because she wasn't happy with it. Mm. However, this book came out a year later. And the first book was a hit in Britain, but until it got to the United States, first one was a mild hit, but the second book, people liked the first one, they read the second one, oh, this is even better, and then people went back to the first one, much like it happened here, when the third one came out and got great reviews, and then people kept going back and going back and going back. So that's that's basically the answer. My curiosity, though, is, again, if it's true what Arnie is saying, she didn't have a chance to do second draft. You're saying she did take it back for six weeks. Mm -hmm. and tweak things. Here's right. all I would say. Yes, this is a repeat of like beat one. The Dursleys are trying to stop Harry from going to wizard school and all that. But in each case, I just want to argue it's better this time than last time. I enjoy it more this time. I like having Lucius Malfoy as the one that is antagonizing Harry more than Snape. Yes. I like Gilderoy Lockhart a whole lot more than that no-name Quirrell professor that like all that you want to talk about happenstance oh you're the bad guy don't care like no this guy like thematically is interesting and I think in this day and age kids discovering social media around the same time that this would become an age-appropriate book I do think there's a lot of lessons here about fame and trying to be popular that would resonate I think this again there's just more meat here you're saying social media was coming of age in 1998? No, I'm saying this movie was forward thinking in that and that it works now in that way. I'm not saying she's a genius for seeing this coming. I'm just saying if I were a kid picking up this now, I would say, boy, this second book looks a lot more like my school life than this first one, including the fact that Harry now, I like this twist. Instead of him being declared by page 100, a great kid that can do no wrong and wins every Quidditch match and does everything right, now is looked at as maybe the heir of the Slytherin house that's going to bring them all down. And still wins every Quidditch match and does everything right. With a broken arm! So, I just want to point out that, in hindsight, I mentioned it earlier, like, comparisons have been made, I'm not the first one to bring this up, that the diary is much like an internet chat room that people yeah. talk back and forth. That's what I wrote down in my notes. It's very topical still, even though chat rooms may not be as popular, I'm not sure. I know I'm not in them anymore, but I do know that people still use them, and, and I think it's wonderful analogy that can be now made. So you're saying Tom Riddle dropped into Harry's DMs. 
Are you saying you don't like? I mean, I get that you're you didn't like this book and you think it's weak and all, but you didn't respond to this as a theme. Like, you don't think bullying and trying to be famous is of like it's just more worthy of a kid's book than whatever the silliness running around with a troll in a bathroom last time. On top of that, don't you think that the themes of racism and class? It's a great way to introduce it to kids with you have people, how they treat house elves and how they treat people who are full wizard or half wizard or don't have powers and their parents are wizards, all that kind of stuff. It's a wonderful way to teach kids the differences in people across the world. I must admit, I didn't really pick up on the whole elf gnome thing that you did, but I agree when, when we find out that the Malfoys are part of a belief that the Slytherin house itself, again, I had trouble understanding why do we have four houses and the fact that they have this breakaway evil house that believes only pure bloods should learn magic. Yeah, all of that is good. I don't know how I feel about Dobby. I'll be honest. He feels like, like a <laughs> fake Gollum, but like, I don't know. In, in the end, <laughs> what I kind of liked about him is like Gollum, you can't be quite sure whether he's going to be an ally or like something really bad. Like I never really believed him. Every time he was trying to warn Harry, it felt more like a threat, but I'm presuming he's going to be his best friend in future adventures. Um, No, but house elves do come back. Some of the themes I'm talking about do come back, but Dobby is not Chewbacca. He is not going to hang out the entire time. Oh, I'm kind of glad about that. I think we all are. Again, I just feel <laughs> like the characters, the friendships, you know, like Hermione last time just felt like a know-it-all and I don't like her. And now I'm like, oh, she's the smart student. Like, we can give her all the figuring out stuff. And again, it doesn't all have to go to Harry to make it all happen. Speaking of Dobby... Why was he warning Harry? Was Lucius Malfoy sitting around the house going, Whoa, I have this diary. I'm going to slip it to Harry Potter and Diagon Alley. And Dobby just decides to go rogue and warn him. I mean, how did Dobby know any of this was going down? So my issue with one of the big issues with the book and the movie, which we will talk about on Now Playing, is why Dobby warns Harry Potter yet no else like he's doing all these things to prevent harry potter from going there to save harry potter but the evil is still going to happen no matter what right if if dobby is in on the plan of the malfoys then it doesn't make any sense he's only warning harry potter or preventing harry potter from going i honestly thought at one point that lucius was using him was sending him as the one person that might possibly stop their plan from not being there at the school that would be better. I think that's there. That was not in the book. It's not. No, it's not. How can you be sure? Dobby is such a question mark. Because you don't know that Dobby is Malfoy's house elf until the end of the book. They don't lay that in there. If he was going to reveal that, he would have said it during his expiatory speech, you know, the monologuing villain at the end. Tom Riddle would have said it. Lucius would have said it. Dobby would have said it at the end. No one said a thing about that. He also says that he's not supposed to be here and he's punishing himself for breaking his master's confidence. That's why he keeps ironing his hands, hitting his head against walls, etc., etc. I'm not sure I believed him, though. Again, I think it can, I think my reading can play. I think you guys are maybe influenced by what you know is going to happen. And I don't have that burden. I can't remember anything about Dobby. I can't remember anything that's going to happen with Dobby. 
if I'm reading this book, Malfoy didn't send him because Malfoy was really pissed that Dobby yes. had gotten involved. Very pissed. Okay, I'll take your guys' word on it. You're the experts. I'm the first-time reader. I'm just saying that Dobby was part of the reason why I felt everything was a little bit more morally suspect, a little bit more gray, a little more intriguing. The mystery was harder to puzzle out, quite frankly, than it was last time. If you could read backwards, you knew what the mirror did. And here, I feel like the murder mystery plot that she works in here, the Agatha Christie story, it's scarier, it's more intriguing. I guess I should have guessed it was Voldemort again. I guess that will be the main baddie of all. The, this, this is the book that tells me it will never not be Voldemort. But it kept me guessing. I'm not going to confirm or deny you're right about that because we'll have an episode next week when we'll talk about the next book and the one after that. And so we'll find out if you're right or not about that. But I do know, Stuart, you just mentioned that you think I'm influenced a little bit by what I know is to come. I do know a piece of interesting trivia that is maybe relevant to that statement is that there were things in this book that were removed and put into a later book called The Half-Blood Prince, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So there are things that are in here that were introduced slightly that are expanded upon greatly later on because she decided that this was not the book for it. She needed to wait. So reading this book now, knowing what's going to happen in, in complete, I don't think it really came into play that much for me because what I took out of this book more about the themes and stuff versus what she's introducing for later. I already mentioned it earlier, like this is kind of a book in hindsight, it's better. I always think of the Age of Ultron movie in that that movie's so much better now that you've seen the rest of the MCU. But when you first saw it, you're like, this is definitely a bridge movie, and now that it all fits together. I unfortunately do not believe this book is the Age of Ultron of this series. It does lay some things in there, introduces some themes, but honestly, you could have introduced some of these ideas that have come up later, later in the series, and it really, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't really influence it, in my opinion. I hear what you're saying, but it's funny you say this. I actually had the thought that she wrote this as part of the first book. And that she realized, like, oh, this will be 700 pages if I put it out this way. I can't release a 700-page kid's book, ha, 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 <laughs> until I have the clout to. And so to, to spare people, little kids particularly, that reading load, no, no one as a first book, it just wouldn't be discovered. So she cut out all the darker and more interesting storylines and let the first one play out mostly as kind of foundational need-to-know background information, this feels like the story. I feel like you could skip the first book, come right in here, you're going to have a better time watching the beats that, yeah, may feel like rehash if you're reading it as the second book. And that's part of what annoys me as well, is everything from the first book that matters is reminded to you just bluntly because it's a kid's book. I mean... I was, again, taken back to when I used to read Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators, and book number one of that series was the foundation of the private detective agency and them meeting Alfred Hitchcock and all of this and making their business cards. And then in every subsequent book, they had to very quickly rehash what happened in the first book so that if this was the first book you were picking up, you understood why they have a detective agency and everything. And here... Everything that matters in the first book is retold to you, and I suppose, again, I'm an adult reading a children's book, but I'm judging it as an adult, and I'm like, I know, get on with it. 
But Arnie, they do this in adult books too. If you watch it, if you read any series of anything, the later novels will tell you all about what the character did in previous adventures. Like, all the time. Star Wars books too. All the Star Wars books you and I have read, they do this constantly when you have like a trilogy of books. They do a quick synopsis just to remember what we did before. Previously, in this novel series, it's exactly the same thing. It feels more organic in those books is what I can say because I was heavily reading Star Wars fiction around this time and I read this book and this book felt more ham-fisted about it. Again, the Star Wars books you and I are reading at this time, most of them were aimed towards older people versus young ones, but I still think it's it's a natural thing to do in a book series. I do like how the characters have matured here. I do like how the themes are presented. I do like how the story is more flowing. I don't think you can skip the first book entirely, maybe up to the point where he gets to Hogwarts. Once the Quidditch is done, then you can skip to this part. You can skip the end of the last book, perhaps, to introduce the world. I think she made a playground, and she enjoyed playing in that playground here, and then from going from here, then she's going to get much more into as this kid matures and the world becomes a darker place. All I can say is this was the reputation of this one was it was one of the not so great ones. And I'm pleasantly surprised. If this is a bad one, I, I look forward to the rest of it. Agreed. And in my mind, this was a sophomore slump. Again, I didn't hate it this time around, but I'm looking forward to getting to book three and beyond. I'll say this. At the end of this book... She did one thing that really pissed me off. Did she do anything that didn't piss you off? Nope. <laughs> it ends with this hook about Harry going back to face the Dursleys. And you know what happened is I ended this book and I'm like, this book was no good. I'd rather reread Da Vinci Code than read this book again. <laughs> and yet I was so stuck on that cliffhanger of what happened with the Dursleys. I raced out and bought book three. I hated myself for doing this. I did not like reading book two, but the mystery of what was going to happen, she had pulled me into this world. I needed to know what happened to Harry over that summer vacation. So dang it, I continued reading, even though I thought about throwing this book in a fireplace. This is par for the course. I think anyone that's followed you on a series knows that you always hold out some kind of magical hope that it'll all get fixed by the next bad sequel. And of course, most of the time it doesn't. But here... Everyone that I've ever heard that's a fan of Harry Potter says things really level up with book three. I'm looking forward to book three. Yeah, and when I go back to read these Harry Potter books, sometimes I don't read all of them from start to finish. I, sometimes I pick one to pick up and read it, right? Like book three, I would just pick up and read. I don't ever do that with this book. I would skip this book. If we were just doing the movies and not doing this here... I would probably reread some of the books for this for the movies and not reread this book. But I'm happy I did. I enjoyed it more this time. And it was a pleasant and happy surprise how much I enjoyed this book because I was not looking forward to rereading it only because it is my least favorite book in the series. Wait, both of you were saying this book is not as good as the first book. Yeah. Yeah. Lies. Lies! Well, again, I'm saying to you, is I enjoy reading that first book so much more. This time through, I really enjoy the themes. I really enjoy the class stuff and the racism stuff and the all of that stuff so much more. But the mystery itself and how it plays out, I liked how Harry was doubting himself and getting all introspective. I really enjoyed that because this is the first time this character in his magical world, his happy place, has now come to grips with, you know, some of the pressures of life are now finding me here. I just can't escape my horrible life there. There are consequences here to my actions that I didn't realize before. 
all of that stuff I greatly enjoyed, but I know where this is going and I prefer the next book. I understand this, Brock, but this book is better than the last book. The last book was a big old shrug of why is this a phenomenon? <laughs> and this book is like, oh, I can see how this might come together into something. Yeah, it's a fine read, but again, having read all seven books before numerous times, I'm telling you that I don't have to reread this book again. Yeah, I got... Let's just go to the next book, folks. Agreed. We'll see you next week. But in the meantime, let's see if the movie fixed some of the conveniences in this book. You know, Stuart, you thought you missed things in this book, and you didn't miss anything. Rowling missed it. But that's where movies have a chance to fix the source material sometimes. The screenwriter can go in and see what happened in a book and tweak it for the screen. Did they do that in this case? You can find out over at our sister podcast, Now Playing Podcast, where the three of us are reviewing every Harry Potter Fantastic Beasts movie leading up to Fantastic Beasts 3. And this week, that review is going to be on the movie, The Chamber of Secrets. It is for supporters of our podcast, and if you support Now Playing, you are supporting Books and Nachos as well. They are sister podcasts, and without supporters, we wouldn't be doing the podcast we do on both shows. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, and until then, remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated.